Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Brian Muller. Brian Muller is a co-founder and CTO at Parallel Markets, a fintech company driving efficiencies in the financial onboarding and fraud detection space. Previously, he was a VP of growth at The Atlantic, where he helped launch a number of digital products to help the magazine transition away from a print focus. Before that, he held the position of director of data science at a number of companies, including Vox Media, Living Social, and Omidyar Network backed off Great Electric in Tanzania. At each of these companies, he created and grew data teams focused on optimizing sales, digital marketing, customer acquisition, ad revenue, and product development. At Living Social, he helped create and implement a data-driven customer growth strategy that led to the increase from a few thousand to almost 100 million users and over a half billion dollars in annual revenue. Brian is an active angel investor and startup advisor with many years spent investing via a prior role at Black Cheese Investments. I am happy and proud to say that he's an advisor at our company, Augex Labs and a person that I turn to very often for advice and just to get my head out of the weeds. And I'm most excited to have him talk to you today. This is Brian. Okay, so Brian, uh, I'm I'm so excited you're here for two, two, well, maybe three reasons. Uh, The first reason is you're the first engineer that agreed to do this. So that's exciting for me because most of my engineering friends are ducking me. So thank you for not doing that. The second reason yeah. is because you have one of the best mustaches in the game. And I'm sad that this is a visual, me- not a visual medium because, <laughs> because it's, it's absolutely great. And so I have mustache envy. But the third reason, aside from being an engineer and having a great mustache, is that I think you are uniquely positioned to talk about the evolution of engineering and product and engineering organizations. And so I kind of want to use that as like sort of just a jump off point. When you think about today... What makes you the most excited about where we're going and what gives you the most pause? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Um, happy to be here. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, actually, first, have any engineers declined an invitation? Uh, yes. Am I the first to accept? Or Oh, wow. All right. Um, yeah, I was, I was 0 for 6 <laughs> trying to get engineers in general. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I like, I, I, I don't know why I don't have a, I don't have a theory on it yet, but I'll come, let's, we'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. That's, that sounds good. Um, yeah. So on, on your specific question, I think, um, I mean, I think that the, certainly, uh, the introduction of, of tools that allow for a code creation, uh, especially for things that might be more boilerplate or um or common patterns i think the pattern based uh completion is something that can certainly um make development way more efficient um and so i think that's something that's great like even if even if we don't make progress beyond simply um allowing for engineers to create code faster than they might have otherwise um i think that that's an incredible uh incredible leap forward um especially for, for folks who are actively using this, these kinds of tools like Copilot and others uh, on, regular, on a regular basis. I think the things that I am concerned about are more on the side of um, uh, anything relating to, um, you know, security or personal information. I think like, I, I do wonder how much attention that might have been spent thinking about that, or even just time, like as you're like, writing that same old like login page yet again you've done that you know 
50 times throughout your career, you're doing it yet again. Um, there might be things that, um, that you would think about as you're creating it, that you're just not going to think about it if you have the ability to, um, to produce that common code form so much faster. Uh, and I think that those are the areas that are more concerning. It's not like it, you know, the, um, the, the applications that are you know, like, Oh, it's a photo sharing app. Great. Okay. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, maybe private photos are released publicly. If it's like a money transfer, you know, application, then like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, maybe you lose all your money or maybe <laughs> you like those, like those in those environments, I do uh, just, I'm concerned more that, um, you know, uh, attention may not be spent on the areas that matter most, um, like that could prevent bad things. So this is, I've, I've not, I've never actually thought of this until you just said it, but now I'm actually very curious immediately about the training possibilities and sort of the, the nature of becoming a better engineer, right? So I think from my, from the product positions and operations position, I've seen a great shift in how things work. Because like, you know, before we were all co-located and so you got to see these engineering relationships and partnerships and mentorships sort of take a very specific form for a very long time. And now you've sort of now that everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are sort of, you know, just located around the country and distributed workforces. That mentorship is, I don't want to say challenging, but it's different for sure. Like, you know, junior engineers getting buddied up with a senior engineer to actually really work together. But now with the introduction of some of these AI tools, like maybe not at all, like maybe they never actually get some of that oversight. Like, is that a concern of yours? Um, I, sure that, that, I mean, that's part of it. I think um, the, a lot of whether or not that's an issue just falls down to what your, what your practice is and how, how your team functions. So I've worked in environments where every line of code was something that came from two people, uh, pair programming for everything. Um, and I think in that environment, you know, it's, it's just a very, very different than if it's, uh, one where like you write code and if you write some tests and you think it works great and then you can put it in production is different than you write code and you have peers who review it and then say, okay, yes, this is good to go. Or, oh, here's, you know, opportunities for improvement or have questions and you can answer it, work through and make, make it better. In each of those scenarios, I think, um, there's a different, level of both efficiency and potential risks. And you're, you're just constantly balancing both efficiency and, and learning um, as two sort of sides, you know, quality, things like that, learning, quality, education, all the things on one side that just take more time versus efficiency of getting put out the door. Um, and I think in the introduction of, um, of, a, of a, you know, what is essentially another engineer, this other brain co-pilot thing, for instance, producing code, like it's not any different. Like you still have the same trade. Like, should you have another person uh, review that code? Like probably, but you know, it all, it all depends on the environment that you're in, how big your team is, what is it you're making? What's the price of a mistake? Um, all of those things. Yeah, that's, we, we've talked offline a, a fair amount about like, you know, the different sizes of organizations, not necessarily size, but structure matters a lot, right? And so there's some instances where I think about what some of these tools can be as an accelerant and I get really excited. There's other times where I think about these tools as an accelerant and it like makes me like pretty nervous where I'm like, I actually think there's a too fast version of this where maybe you're moving too fast and you could potentially miss things. So along those lines, 
What do you think, if anything, this does for the relationship between product and engineering? Yeah. Um, my, I, I think it, I think the answer to that question just depends so much on the kinds of organization, the kind of organization you're in. I mean, I can, I can see some cases where maybe the relationship just gets better because engineering is delivering something that product can see and look at and, and test much faster. Uh, and maybe that's just great overall. Um, I can also see, you know, potential downsides like we we're you know we we're talking about the potential for the introduction of errors that may not have otherwise been there like if you have if you have the ability to hit a button it's like write my tests and you hit the button you're like yep looks good you know as you skim through the code you're like ready to go uh are those tests sufficient like well that depends on a lot of things and, and they may not be you might be shipping uh code for which tests pass but they're written in such a way as like so that they will pass and um maybe you didn't end up shipping good tests. Maybe these were just tests for things that actually are unlikely to break or, or you know, don't necessarily matter, aren't like part of a happy path for, for a particular uh, application. And the result is you have more buggy code that you're shipping, even if po potentially you're shipping way more tests, but you're not testing for the right things. And so um, that can certainly negatively impact relationship with product if you're shipping way more buggy code. Um, so I think that those... Like those are, are two, certainly two things that could impact. I think the ability for a product, I think the area that I've, and certainly the area I've seen most, most change in that relationship is one where product teams are able to produce proofs of concept on their own. And yeah. they're able to say, hey, like this is not production ready. We should not put this in production. This is not connected to our main application in any way, but. I was thinking if we had a you know thing that looked like this and like when I click this button this thing happens if they can produce those proofs of concept just to prove out a particular feature or or even new product line things like that I think that um it makes the communication a lot easier to say to engineers hey this is just a proof of concept here's all the things that would probably have to change but like this is roughly how it should work and I think it's way easier to communicate uh features or applications those ideas um in actual like even if it's rough usable form um so i think that's that's pretty exciting so that's interesting so for you you don't find that as encroaching on the engineering territory as long as it's couched under the the guise of like this is a rough thing that would never make it to the real world but it is a good enough example of what i'm trying to accomplish here to send you down a path yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I don't, I, I think that the, um, you know, I not to use the same caveat so often, but like so much depends on what it is you're building. And so in a, um, and what, and what the price of a mistake may be. So if you're in the very early stages of, of creating an application um, and you have zero customers or zero users, then, uh, then that, that kind of, um, Hey, here's what I was thinking for the, whatever feature, here's what I was thinking for the application, like that, you can use those examples as language to communicate those ideas so much more clearly and plainly than like, you know, um, mocks that you can't interact with uh, or, um, you know, drawings on the napkin or, or prose in, in paragraph form. Um, I think if you're then saying, hey, and this is the thing we're building and we're expecting a million users next month, um, whatever it is that like you designed as a more product or designer, um, in a product or designer role, like whatever it is you built is probably not going to like 
work well for those million people. Like it's not going to probably not going to scale. It's probably not going to like look great. It's probably not going to like all of the, the things that go into like, Oh, do we need internationalization support? Do we need to be like, have a multilingual interface? Do we need to, you know, like all of those things are things that add a lot of complexity um, and things where, you know, engineers are used to thinking through those things and thinking through, okay, well, like what's the first thing that breaks as this scales? Um, those are questions that are not necessarily like design or interface related, like user experience related, um, but they very much do need, you know, engineers with that experience to be able to say, yes, this is a thing that will handle a million users, or we plan on having a million users this year. Let's let's make sure that what we're doing will has the foundation necessary for that scale. Uh, which is all different than just like, oh, here's an expression of a user experience, um, which is just a, a part of the tip of the iceberg of, of the engineering practice. Yeah. So you bring up some things. You said the cost of mistakes a few times, which I love that phrasing, right? Because I do think it's an important thing. And again, I'll, I'll pre-answer part of it. It depends on the size and scale of the organization and what you're building for sure. But as an, as an engineering manager and as a leader of, of technology organizations, how do you go about figuring out what the cost of a mistake is? Like, how, what, like, do you have a practice that you actually use to start to actually scope what those feel like for real? Not a, not a formal process. Um, I think that a lot of it is, um, is, uh, can be more obvious given the, the scenario. So if you are a, a startup that has um, the prospect of your first, like enterprise, busy or B two B like SaaS company. And they're like, oh, our very first customer is going to be you know signing up and testing our product. Um, then you you have this like internal like fear and dread that like your your experience with how like this you know application will work and how they will use it may be way off, and they may start using it, find a ton of bugs, or do things that you never even anticipated, which is natural. Like users, once they start, some some people have a have a you know, skill um, and do this way better than others when they're like just testing stuff, but they will click that button and then that button and then type something in here that like, you never thought they were like, why would anyone do that? Like, of course you'd click this thing and then click this. You know, like, no, like users are going to find a way um, to, to use your product in ways that you did not intend. And when that actually starts happening, so you're fir- with your first uh, enterprise customer or potential customer, there's a lot riding on that, um, which I think is very different than like, Oh, we're rolling out like a B2C application that is like, oh, our friends and family are testing it. The price right. of a bug there is basically zero. Um, probably. I mean, unless unless you're taking <laughs> their credit card information, their banking details, and then whoopsies, your you know, uh, your permissioning system was not very good and somebody downloaded all your friends and family, uh, all their financial information. That would be terrible. But like typically that's like not like the price of the mistake there is not so great. Um, but if there's money on the line, if there's users on the line, if there's reputation on the line, you're like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to have a, we're going to have a Super Bowl ad. Uh, and like things need to stand up. Um, I worked at a company called living social that like we did it. We had a Super Bowl ad and we offered something incredible. It was like, like a hundred dollars on Amazon for like, 75 or something like that where you like you just got free money on amazon and it was like of course this is going to be enormous and and like but if you fall down if you fail to deliver then all the people who've never heard of you use you for the first time are going to say nope no thank you like that was that was terrible like 
great idea. I was really excited. I went to your website and nothing happened. Um, <laughs> so like the price, I think the price of failure can usually be tied back to dollars or anticipated dollars. Even if your service is free, uh, you're going to make money somehow. So like that, that cost I think can typically be tied to a, to a business, um, an actual business, like financial case. So let me ask you this question though, because I, I think about this a lot. So I, you know, I mean, people who listen know that I've been in the startup world for a long time, sort of on purpose, not sort of on purpose, very specifically on purpose. And one of the things that we trade in is tech debt, right? And so I think about like, what's the cost of, you know, the cost of a mistake. Mm-hmm. There's also the cost of the, the good enough, right? Which is like, this will work, question mark. <laughs> and then you do that once twice, three times a lady. And all of a sudden now you have like a really meaningful backlog of stuff that is built on subpar or non, not your favorite version of the code. So from your, from your point of view, because pro- by the way, I like, I will just go on record before, so you don't have to say it. That's always product's fault. Like we are, we are almost a hundred percent to blame for tech debt, like most of the time, because we have put timelines or something on something that needs to get out before we were thoughtful, blah, 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 blah. That said, when you think about building, you know, the cost of something, like how much do you consider I could do this this way and I can tell product I could do it like this, or I could do it the right way and not tell them that, that I have a shortcut. Like, does that weigh on you as an engineering leader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that like you've described the sort of external facing trade-offs uh, between say a product and engineering team where, you know, there's this negotiation of like, oh, well, what if we did this and this and this, how long would that take? And it's like, oh, that would take 10 years. You're like, okay, well, what if we cut these things and only did, you know, this feature and this feature and this feature is like, oh, we can do that in four weeks. It's like, okay, well, we're going to have to follow that with like adding this feature and this feature. Like y'all know that, right? And like, there's that sort of negotiating back and forth um, that happens internally as well. So when there are conversations within an engineering team about, well, we got to do this thing and this thing, like, well, should we like make a new table in our relational database? That's just like handles this special thing temporarily. And then one day we promise we'll get rid of it and like incorporate it in a much better, more stable way that will serve us better for the future. Like there's always those those negotiations around those trade-offs. Um, and I think the best solution that I've, <laughs> I've found is to, um, is to affirmatively say, look, at least 20% of engineering time is going to be spent paying down debt. We're going to prioritize the debt. We're going to like work on, on, on actually paying that debt down. Um, but roughly one day a week for every engineer should be paying down, paying down debt. Um, and so the like internal and external understanding of what kind of velocity we could have and what kinds of things we can accomplish, I always at least discount by 20% or so and then right. say, okay, well, well, you know, here's what we can do, assuming that, you know, roughly 20% of the team isn't working. Um, and I think that that, that typically works well when you're talking about features or things that that product can certainly see and test and users can see and test. I think those kinds of things there has to be, you know, you, you can negotiate agreements. You can say, okay, well, if we do it this way, then we're going to like go back afterwards. So there's going to be a follow up. There's going to be a cleanup phase and that's going to be for this long. And these are the things we're going to do to improve. 
Um, and then, you know, because hashtag startup life, uh, maybe you do that, maybe you don't. Uh, maybe there's <laughs> right. that big, awesome customer who, like, you know, is going to sign the $10 million contract and all you need is to, you know, make these changes. Sorry, like that cleanup phase for that other unrelated feature may or may not happen. Um, I think the best you can do is document and keep track of it and say, um, you know, hey, for our, if we if we run out of you know tech only debt and we're going to start on product debt and this is just like we're keeping track of the debt somewhere and always prioritizing always triaging re-ranking based on business need yeah i think it's so tech debt is one of those things where if you're a non-product founder right it feels alien to a lot of people because I've, I've been very lucky to speak to a lot of just entrepreneurs and ceos and stuff and like when when you bring up you know I remember in one particular instance, I brought up like a backlog of tech debt. And I was like, this is how much tech debt we have. This is how long it would take to fix. This is how long we could do this if we just re-architect the entire thing from scratch, knowing what we know now. You have enough tech debt that this is a real conversation we have to have. Like we're, we're almost closer to rebuilding it than we are to trying to fix the mess that we've made. And that's okay, but now you go like <laughs> you gotta you gotta yeah. green light me in one way or another um I, I that's from that like is that a thing that ever crosses your mind right because as, as quickly as technology is changing and as fast as some of these new tools are around do you think that there is a larger appetite from your standpoint as a technologist to go actually you know what if we've incurred a fair amount of tech debt i bet we could do this different from from the jump and probably not spend all that much more time. Like, is that a thing that crosses your mind? Oh boy, yeah. The uh, there's this there's this myth of the the like fast rewrite. Um, yeah, and, right. and it's it's a myth I've encountered a number of times. Um, and something that I think anybody who's been engineering for you know for a while um, is particularly you know, has, has scars. Like anybody's been doing this wrong, has scars. And, and like anytime you're like, hey, what if we just did a rewrite of, they just have this visceral reaction that's like, no, like, no, nope, not going to do it. Like, bad idea. Um, and I think the projects that I have seen succeed that, that are full rewrites are ones that, um, that do it piecemeal, that do it slowly, that do it in some incremental way that's, you know, like, oh, there's, like we just put a proxy in front of these, like front of the existing API, then like one by one, we're going to rewrite these endpoints and so, and like have a plan, a path, a, a schedule, and then be accountable for hitting milestones in that schedule. Um, and the only way you can do that is again, if you're like sort of holding back and saying, you know, oh, some percentage, some amount of our bandwidth is going to be devoted to this thing. And like that is sacrosanct. Like nobody can take that away because ideally nobody knows about it. Um, it's right. like, the, it's right. like the, the secret, you know, capacity that you're just like, nobody else knows about, but like you're committed to, to spending against some schedule to do that piecemeal. I, if like full rewrites, you know, become, uh, possible faster because of the introduction of AI, uh, the introduction of like tools that allow for, um, you know, maybe you could just say, oh, here's the code base, make it go fast. Uh, and at some point, uh, there may be, there may be recommendations that come from, from AI that are totally workable, that give you 
more capacity, the ability to put off uh, having to um, having to deal with you know maybe some scale questions or something like that. That's really interesting. I think um, the ability to say like, hey, like we don't here's uh, here's a whole bunch of slow queries that we know are causing issues for our users. Like, can any of these be made faster? Um, and then have you know if the robot says yeah these two actually like here's here's another way you could do this with the understanding of the context of the code that would be that could actually give you the ability to put off uh, having to having to pay down debt sooner that's I think interesting yeah I, th- this idea of structure around code so it's so it's the same thing like let's take it out of the coding context because that's I'm not as strong there but I think about it a lot and the way that uh, written AI and marketing messaging, right? If you give a model all of the marketing messaging for a huge brand, doesn't matter what brand it is, but they have a tone and they have sentimentality and they have all this context that goes into what makes their thing their thing so that it's very quote unquote on brand. You know, coding, I, I think is very much the same way, right? Like you have a structure and you have a way that you go about things. So this idea of being able to like, load all of your your entire code base into something and go learn how we do things and then start making recommendations as opposed to the autofill sort of this is how I do I need a function that does blank now let me jam it in here but instead you know how we write functions you understand the way that things are correlated through the process now write me a function that does blank like that to me is very interesting but also at the same time gets a little terrifying because it does feel to me like it's almost enough hands-on that it starts to feel lazy. And uh, that to me feels like problems when testing almost always. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I mean, the, the greatest fear is that, is that the, the humans looking at the output, forget the why, like you're like right. here machine. I don't know. Hit the, it's like the, um, you know, the, the button on like photo editing, it's like, just make it better. And like, you know, so many photo editing tools, you just like hit the button. It's like, here's the result. You're like, oh, wow, that is nice. Um, if if the coding tools end up doing this and like people forget, oh, wait, well, I just click this button. It's like, I don't know, made some changes. And I just say like, great, let's go. Um, and you like, you lose that connection to the, the like, okay, well, what changed and why did it change? Why is this better? This, you know, the robot says that this, yeah, I don't know, SQL query, like written this way is going to be really slow and this other one's faster. And if your response is like, well, I don't know why that is, but sounds good to me, like go. Um, I think you lose the ability to validate the output. And and I think that's where you start getting into dangerous territory. Um, that's that's what I'm more terrified of. Uh, yeah. Is people who are hit, hitting the buttons for the robot forget like, or lose the ability to validate the output. Yeah. Yeah. And the testing to the part of it, like, you know, the, the, the way this is going to affect the QA and the SDET world also is really fascinating, right? Because like, I think, you know, the, the, we've had really good mechanics for testing things with machines for a while. Like that's not a new construct, but also I have always had manual testers because they just find stuff like it's just a different animal. Like, you know, when you turn somebody loose on a thing and go, go break it as opposed to here's everything that we thought you could do. 
and now test against those things versus like go bang around on the keyboard and see what happens like both internally and externally too, right? Just go press the buttons to see what happens. Like I'm always fascinated by just the, the like the volume of stuff manual testers will find that really, really smart Selenium Cucumber written code doesn't. <laughs> like it just yeah. doesn't find it. <laughs> yeah, or even dumb stuff. Like I um, I used a an ordering app uh, recently where you can put in a negative tip. Uh, and That's hilarious. The, the system... <laughs> The system accepted it, uh, and I was like, "Yeah, all right." Um, <laughs> I think, I think, whatever engineer like created this thing was thinking, you know, it wasn't even it probably wasn't even something that crossed their mind. Like, why would no? That like it's not even a, a thing you would think about. Wait, what if somebody puts in a negative number? They're just like, okay, is the tip a number? Great, okay, then accept it. And I think that, you know. Uh, there's a there's fuzzing, which is one one approach to testing, where like a, um, a, a, a testing harness will just produce tons of like random random output for you know form fields, for instance, which probably would have caught that particular issue um, had they been testing for it. But like hu- I think humans uh, are still pretty good at thinking of those like those cases where it's like, wait a minute, can I game the system? Can like the system may even in some cases operate exactly as intended. But if you use it in this way with this slight, you know, put in this thing here and this thing, then like you get an outcome that was wholly unexpected and undesirable. Um, And I think that humans uh, can, can find those things uh, in ways that are, uh, that take into account motivation, take into account like reward. Um, And I don't, I don't know that robots are going to get great at that. At, at least not in the near term um, because they don't have that, that concept of like a certain particular goal. Like how do I get free money out of this thing or how do I not pay for my food? Uh, it's like right. not a thing a robot's going to be thinking about, but um, that's, I think that's yeah, interesting. All right. So this is a, we're changing topics a little bit, but I, I'm interested in this. You and I have talked about this a bit offline but now when it comes to sort of having these AI assisted tool sets that people can use and this idea you just said, sort of like the motivation of stuff, I want to talk about the different kinds of engineers. And what I mean by that specifically, and this might be the reason some of my friends are ducking me is because this is like one of my favorite topics, but it's this idea of, you know, I think that there's, and very unfairly, by the way, there's a sort of stigma around engineers being like, and it's Kevin Smith and whatever uh, that horrible Die Hard movie was with Justin Long, where he's just like the warlock in his basement, locked around, you know, whatever. And that's not true. Most of the engineers I've worked with in my career have been wildly collaborative and fun. However, there is an archetype and there is an existing understanding of the difference between an individual contributor, a partial contributor, and an all-in, like, doing it with you all the time. As these tools sort of progress, do you think that they're going to push any one of those things to be more common or aside from the organization, obviously organizations will decide how people function, but do you think that it'll be easier to become an an individual contributor as an example with some of these tools, like more disconnected from the mothership and just kind of like shipping the thing you're supposed to ship or no? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um, I think, I mean, I, I think like part part of my answer is that the like the validation part of the work is still very important. Will probably always be important. The ability to say, okay, this is 
this is right or this is good um, coming out of the out of the robot. Like you want to, you assuming there's some price to mistakes. Like the validation will always be important. Um, and so the actual like work process is still like produce code uh, to solve a particular problem, add a feature, achieve some goal, and ensure that it does what it's supposed to, and that it doesn't do anything it's not supposed to. Uh, and I think that that part, um, that part definitely like doesn't change. Um, the question as to whether or not that could like if people are producing um, features, product code faster, I don't know. I mean, it, it could. I could certainly see it um, maybe producing a more kind of collaborative relationship if this if the iterative cycles are just shorter. So if the periodicity of like, oh, like we want to have this week, great. Okay, we have a feature we want to add. Here's like descriptions of why, all the how it should work, and engineers take that build it. If they build it faster and they come back and like, okay, how about this? Um, then, then maybe that's more of a conversation than you know throwing stuff over a fence. Um, but um, I don't know. I think that that just like I could see that happening from efficiency. I'm not sure I see it happening for any other reason. Because the the other reason I asked the question is because I think there's there's a generational thing here, which I'm I'm going to dance on potentially getting myself in trouble, but. Like I have at least, you know, anecdotally, I have noticed that the I'm a fringe millennial and then Gen Z, who I now get to hire and work with and have worked for even like they're just they feel wildly more collaborative in general. And I think millennials, we are sort of I've seen both sides of us. Like, I think I've, I've seen that very wildly collaborative thing and also this like very sort of just like do the thing, get it done, go away mindset. Like I'm very fascinated by the human side of this as an operations and product person. Like to me, this is always the interesting thing. And, and one of the things that I've used before, I didn't use this in the book because I actually got told not to, because it might offend people, but I'm going to say it now anyway, because I think it's funny, but this idea of like indoor cats, outdoor cats and dogs, right. And this idea that like there are indoor cats who like want to be around you and be fed and be satiated and they'll be in the house there's outdoor cats who are totally good on their own. Like they don't, they'll come home sometimes if they need to. And then there's like dogs, which is like golden retriever energy, right? Like requires to be played with in order to function. And I think it's interesting because it's not, that's not specific to engineers. It's every single vertical in the industry. Like every person in your organization could be one of those three things. And I'm, I'm noticing that some of these tasks specifically for engineers are inherently more interpersonal. You're sort of just doing it on your own for a bit and coming back. And if you have one of those two archetypes that is more sort of a, a collaborator, that could be more challenging. So I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, like A, agree, disagree otherwise, and just B, like, do you, is that a thing that you think we have to be mindful of as we grow organizations, specifically the ones that are non-co-located? Um, I, I think for the, uh, the generational differences, I think that that's, um, that is something that I, at least anecdotally, would say is something I've, I've certainly seen. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with how people initially are introduced to engineering, building, creating products. Um, and back in my day, um, you know, like I was checking books out of a library. Like I was, like, like I, I was like reading phys- physical books that were like probably already you know a couple years too late like you know by the time they got to the public library um but like that's that's how i learned a lot of stuff before i could actually like there was no in a typing class in school 
but even that was like really new and kind of, you know, um, like we had computers that were like, weren't even networked and it was just, we learned how to like use a keyboard. Um, right. And so, so much of it required a uh, drive to like go find information out there, like to, and it was something you did on your own. Um, and so, so much of that learning required, um, re- required effort, like a ton of effort, but it was like individual effort. Like you have to go and then you have you basically being an autodidact in that area was sort of the only option. Um, and you compare that with, you know, now like everyone's got, uh, the internet in their pocket and they can ask a question like, Oh, how do I do this? Thing? How do I make a website? You know, like things like that, that are just like at your fingertips, ready to go. And there's so many tools and so many things like so many boot camps that are online to teach you how to do this stuff. Um, and I think that that just lends itself to more of a collaborative environment. Like it's more, it's easier for, for you to like find that information and to find groups like yourself, people who are learning to right. find those co-educational opportunities. Whereas a long time ago was, you know, like it was you and maybe you had a friend or something that was interested in it too, but you had to put in a lot of effort. I think that that just appealed to a different kind of person. It was so much harder and required so much more dedication. So I think that that, that generational differences is, is definitely a thing. Um, and just because the doors are now open to people who are like marginally interested in, in like, how do I make a website? And then they're like, Oh, this is really, this is really interesting. And it was so easy. And then they get into it. Um, I think that's uh that is um certainly a thing and the tools that can allow for faster development that may seem more I don't know more like an, a single individual could accomplish more I don't know that that necessarily means that it's going to be any less collaborative so for instance like we were talking about earlier I think I could see a world in which uh, companies that have pair programming practices like just continue that even if like now it's more of a not a pair but you have now sort of three minds that are producing code you're, you're still doing it as a as a group looking at the output and say oh well actually okay the robot says this but is that right like do we want to do it this way should we do it a different way like i still see that that collaboration um you know would, would be just as important or just as useful in those situations so i i don't know that it like uh enables or could produce more of a um individualistic or, or separated uh, experience necessarily. Yeah. I like the way that you approach it, that like the speed and it's a fun sort of counter, right? Which is that while you have more autonomy to potentially do more on your own, the speed with which you're going to have to do it is going to have to bring you back home sooner than later anyway. So it's not, it's a different kind of collaboration, but it's still required. Right. So I, I, I really like, and I haven't thought of that optic before, Brian. I actually really appreciate that thought. Cause my, my concern is that, you know, from a, purely product and operations standpoint, you know, sometimes you have wildly talented engineers who are less collaborative. And sometimes you have really, really talented engineers who want to be really collaborative and same same with product people, right? Like I've had product people who were just brilliant at writing spec docs, but then you put them in a room to do a presentation about why a thing's a thing. And it's like, like (laughs) it just gets really tight, really fast. So being able to lean into what people's desire is, I think is really important. And being able to leverage the technology so that it does that as opposed to a hindrance to them, I think is an interesting challenge for entrepreneurs today, because back to your very salient earlier point, right? Like so much of it depends on what you're building and why you're building it. That, you know, maybe there's, there's a world where, you know, really, really sort of like 
deep in the weeds product and engineering people can go off and do a thing by themselves with very little help. And that might be interesting, right? But it's probably going to be a much more of a point solution than a larger, like a widely used application potentially, which is, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. All this stuff is fascinating to me, like what it's going to do for the next version of products. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there are, there are certainly some kinds of problems that, um, for which there are uh, clever solutions, and maybe those clever solutions are necessary. Um, and you know, some people are just uh, would rather solve a problem um, on their own and find some solution on their own, and then bring it back to a group and say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Um, other people want to do it dynamically, like um, in a virtual room live, uh, and try to find try to brainstorm around a particular solution. I don't like people are still going to want to do this, have the same patterns and there's still going to be problems where like, you can't just ask the robot, Hey, like, how can we do this thing? And it's going to spin out code that does it, especially if you're operating, you know, on a, on a working on a problem that, uh, for which there is not a great and known solution. Um, right. one that would require, would require some amount of, of effort. And maybe there's a lot of dumb answers and you're like, Oh, well we have this list of things that would probably work, but are all really bad answers. Um, and to find the best answer, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that you're like, you're still going to have people who are going to want to do that. Like say, look, let me, let me take a day and like, think about this. Um, and there's not a way that robots are going to like in any way impact that kind of problem, at least not, especially if it's a rare kind of, or, or unique kind of problem that you're facing. Yeah. One of the things, so a question I have for you is on the documentation side, like one of the things that I've appreciated in my career as a product person working with really brilliant engineers is like the, the, the requirements have come less and less. So very similar to what you said earlier, I was laughing to myself, like in my office right now is the product manager's desk reference guide that I checked out of the library at Syracuse at some point, And I think I stole by accident. Sorry, Syracuse. But like, that's what I had to look at. Like, that's what I was like, oh, I want to build products that are in the, on the internet. And that was, it's like a 470 foot, it's like in, you know, it's Jane Eyre. Like it's a huge novel sort of a thing. But this idea now that like documentation is getting smarter, not necessarily shorter because length isn't a problem if it's the right kind of length, but getting like more and more intelligent. That's a place where I'm very bullish on what I think AI can do in the relationship between product people and engineering people is getting requirements that are more meaningful and even being able to like pre-write them for the same way that like you guys are using autopilot to finish code that like is it's clear what's what you're doing is is there and it's like oh we know what you're doing here just press enter on this and make sure that we didn't screw it up like as as a product person i'm finding myself using chat gpt more and more and more to get started on objects because i can feed it a form and go it's got to be in roughly this form it can't be longer than this and like take a stab at these features based on all this other like, you know, knowledge that I've already told you about the thing that I'm doing. And it's pretty good. It's like 60, 70% there. I have to do some serious fine tuning, but like that's way more worth it to me. And it helps with that consistency and in, in, in conversating with engineers. Like, do you think that's a, a space that, you know, I don't want to get into like the difference between the tools, but like ticket writing is a thing that I think about all the time. Like how do you make better tickets for engineers that are still written by product people? Yeah. Um, I think, I think that the, one of the things I spent a lot of time on, um, when, when writing stories or tickets, writing documentation for engineers, um, is, is the background, making sure that they understand the context. And context. I think that that's something that like 
can feel repetitive at times, especially if I'm like, you know, we use this um, a request for comments type form where we write out a whole, you know, lots of background, lots of context, and then tend to replicate a lot of that in all the stories or resulting tickets that are created. There's like a lot of repetition around that. And, you know, even if you're cross-linking everything, I think having the ability to say like, all right, robot, like here's all the context for the thing that we're trying to accomplish. Um, like, can you, can you break this out into a series of steps or tasks that need to be done and include the context of, you know, of the background of why we're doing this yeah. and like why each part matters. Um, and I think that's, that's an area. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something even today that is um, immensely time-saving. Um, so I think that that kind of communication um, definitely becomes a lot faster. And if you're able to say, you know, for even for a designer or for people building front-end interfaces to say to uh, to the robot, like here, you know, I need a thing that does like design, draw draw mocks for, you know, this and this and this and this, and then to be able to get most of the way there or even all the way there, if it's yeah. really simple and say like, and here's what it should look like, I think is, um, is immensely valuable, especially for people who are more visually uh, driven or uh, un- understand uh, what you're trying to get get at uh, in a visual way, whereas the pros, you know, they might get lost in. So definitely, um, I think a lot lot to be gained there. Yeah, I think the the as my career has progressed, I, I find that I design in comps and mocks way more than I did when I first started. Like I used to have to do the 15 page PRD thing that had every feasible thing that could happen. Which, by the way, those documents are still wildly useful. Uh, but it's, it's, it is so much easier. And I wonder if this is generational or not, maybe just because of the way that everyone now has had phones for so long that now you sort of like, well, cause I work on the user interface side of things a lot. Like you sort of understand what a thing's supposed to probably do. And so when you see it, you go, oh, now I get it versus trying to read it. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see where AI is going to play a, a role in that. Cause I've not, I've not found anything that's doing particularly smart design things in business applications and or more intensive d- digital design problems like marketing material i mean you know canvas pretty good <laughs> yeah well I, th- I mean it's a it's like a just a force multiplier it's something that even if it you know it's not 100 percent. even if it's 10 percent, if it saves you 10 percent of the time it would have taken then the amount's beneficial um and i think that those you know that 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 amount that it's of time that it's saving is only going to increase over time, especially as those systems get smarter, as they are trained on more more interfaces in more scenarios and more situations and more context, yeah. um, and the the gains, you know, I'll take a five percent. If I can say five percent of the time on a particular task, I'll take it. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the thing that I think is it, that I find fun to think about is this idea that like you know I have multiple instances of, of GPT up, and they are trained on different corpuses of knowledge. And now because I've been using them for months and months and months and months, a couple of them are really good. Like they're really good now. Like they know the baseline of what I'm asking it to do. It's really, really dialed into what I need. Right. But that's to your point. That's no different than providing context to an engineer. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it also like as much as the machine needed it, the human also needed the why behind the thing to make better decisions from the jump. Right. And the difference is, is I have a recorded history of every conversation I've had with my GPT instance. (laughs) I don't with all the other people that I work with. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I think I think if if you can if you can give it the context for you know or even have project based instances, uh, you know, and say like, give it all the like basically like spit out all the context for this particular project, um, yeah. then you know that's um, I don't I haven't I haven't really thought about the idea of having like a project specific instance that like everyone across teams would have access to. Um, but that that could be interesting. Like, it's it, so. Know, ask, I, wait a minute. Should we do like when you hit delete? Should we really delete, or should we just like not show it anymore? Like, just ask ChatGPT. You know, and based on whatever context has been fed, maybe it'll just spit out a. It's okay to just hide it, and you're like, oh, sweet, okay, well, all right, well, now we don't. You know, pro- product managers, uh, that job is now a whole lot easier. Yeah, that's actually. I, so it's funny. I don't use it for product stuff because I, you know don't think I need it, which is probably untrue. <laughs> I probably do. But like for, for marketing purposes, which is not a strength of mine. So when I want to think about a marketing thing, every marketing material piece we've ever created for for our company, I feed into one of the instances and then I ask it a bunch of questions. And now it basically acts as like my fractional CMO where it can't make the actual marketing chief marketing decisions, but I can go in and go, all right, if I wanted to approach something like blank, how do I do that based on everything else that we've done and what language would we use so that it's consistent? And it gives me a framework for having a conversation for something that my brain otherwise isn't always great at because I speak in product, mm-hmm. not in marketing. And it's been super, super helpful. But I love the idea of actually like feature setting it and giving it like all the things that your product is doing and then go, hey, should we blank and just see what it does? I might do that today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and that and that's that's interesting for me to hear that you have like you have an instance that is like trained in your brand voice. Um, yeah, and you say using our brand voice, how would we talk about this thing? Um, that's that's really interesting. I, it's I been. It it, be I'll tell you, it's been super useful to me because, like, we've. I mean, you're familiar, obviously, with what we do. Like, so, so, like, we are building all of like we have our main product, but then we have these other things that come up, and as we build them, I'm like, okay, like how do I put marketing language around this that is still like on brand? Because everything's built off of the core thing we're building, but they're a little bit left to center. It's a little bit like right to center. It's always like, it, but it's still, it's still feeding the overall engine. I can talk about that in slides. Like when I was first trying to support Jeremy and fundraising, like I was a nightmare in making decks because I was making product decks, right? And so I was making decks that were super heavy on the tech side, which were really cool for product people. And all my friends who were product people were like, I love your deck. And my friends in the venture capital world were like, dude, what does that say? Like, I don't understand what any of that means. <laughs> like, that's all really boring to me. And I was like, oh, right. Because you guys don't care about the 17 different things that we're doing technically to make this one thing magically happen. You care about what happens after it's already made. Got it. Cool. Got it. Got it. Got it. So being able to reframe like that and having something or a, a, a being question mark, that's like in my pocket that I can like, Hey, I need to figure out how to say this thing for this audience and my brand voice do that for me has actually been super useful. I never publish anything it makes, but it mm. puts me down a path that I know now better how to like, sort of like say it somewhere else or start writing it myself. I think, I think that that's for that kind of uh, material that is designed to be more, I'll say more public, even though, you know, some yep. of it is intensely private, but like, you know, you're sharing it externally to, to a company, to an organization um, that the, you know, having, having output from the robot certainly makes sense. The area that, that I struggle with um, is understanding the, the potential danger for intellectual property rights uh, 
in context in the context of creating an intellectual property. And so like um, at parallel markets, we currently don't allow the use of any uh, any sort of generative AI tools for producing intellectual property. Um, right. That's a hundred percent, you know, artisanal human created handcrafted code that, that we're producing. Um, and the reason is that right now we, we can say with absolute certainty, the intellectual property that we've created, we wholly own. Like we, we are paying humans to produce it. Um, and I think for things like marketing materials and all the rest, it's, it's you know, like not, um, might have trademarks involved and that sort of thing, but it's not um, not like the, the secret sauce, the, the core stuff that, yeah. that is actually valuable. And that's the part that I struggle with is like the extent to which, you know, if you are maybe one day going public and, you know, going through a diligence process and somebody's like, well, okay, have you ever had like generative AI produce any part of your intellectual property? And you're like, oh, yes, actually, we use all these robots to produce it. And we're like, well, okay, well, do you like, how do you know that it wasn't trained on copyrighted materials? How do you know the output doesn't contain copyrighted material? How do you know that like you're not infringing somebody else's IP because of the, what was used for training? Um, right. And that's, that's the thing that I think is, um, I don't know that I really, you know, I have, have struggled to find good, clear, uh, bright line guidance. Yeah. Um, on the lead. And of course, when you, when you then introduce lawyers into that conversation, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of, a lot of daylight between what engineers could do or, you know, or would do in those scenarios and how, how lawyers understand the process of code or or product creation. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one that I, I mean, I feel wildly unfit to even, like begin to think about because it's, it's something that we, I mean, we think about it a lot and it's kind of a, yeah, it's a weird line. Like, I don't know, like it's, you know, we work very specifically in the generative AI space and just talking yeah. to even potential clients of ours. Like there are entire parts of our platform that we've had to take out for them to consider using it just in case dot, dot, dot. So yeah. When you think about the code side, it's, yeah, it's very much the same thing. It's a really interesting point. Well, uh, we are, we're at time, so I want to make sure that I'm respectful of yours, but I also cannot uh, leave without asking my final little questions. So this is uh, based on the Bernard Peebo questionnaire, which was then made famous by James Lipton in Inside the Actor Studio that I have taken a digital twist to because it makes me fun. I think it's fun. So uh, fast answers. I won't ask any follow-ups. You can say whatever you want. First question is a quote or a concept that you love. Yeah, I think um, I have to go with... Uh something that Eric Raymond said in the cathedral of the bazaar, uh, release early, release often. Yeah. Um, that is something that, that I love. They're, they're like the next part of it is, and listen to your customers. Um, so I think, I think all those things are good, but absolutely iterative development. Yeah. Love that. Uh, what's a quote or concept that you dislike or have strong feelings against? The general guidance not to procrastinate, uh, is something I've, I've always, um, I don't know, not, not really cared for. I, I love to procrastinate. And I think that there's no better way to get focus and separate things that matter from things that don't matter than to be up against the clock. I think procrastination is a, is a, a tool that has served me well. I love that. That's a great, that's one of my favorite answers I think I've had so far. That's great. Uh, what's a job other than your own that you would love to have? Uh, I would love to be a carpenter. Um, I just, uh, this past weekend went sailing on a boat that a friend of mine built, uh, he's a carpenter, built a boat. We went sailing. It was amazing. I was like, I would love to learn what's necessary to create something like this. 
hey, to make a seaworthy vessel is is no joke. Uh, a job other than your own, you would never want to have. Uh, well, when I was thinking about potential answers a few days ago, the answer would have been um, CEO of OpenAI. I think that, <laughs> that is not a job I would have wanted, and I know they were looking for somebody. There are rumors about the number of people who turned that down. Um, I'll go with what I wrote then. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, what turns you on spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? I am a big fan of constitutionals. Uh, I love walking. Um, and if I need if I need to recharge spiritually, creatively, and emotionally, uh, walking in the woods or art galleries. That's not a big one. Um, my office is right by um, right by an art gallery um, in the Meatpacking District in New York. And um, I love just going going to the Whitney. I'll spend 15 minutes and I'll just like walk through all the galleries and then leave during, during a lunch break. And that is, that just it's recharges. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, what's what turns you off spiritually, creatively or emotionally? Uh, I would say meetings that could have been a Google doc uh, really just should not happen. Love that answer. Uh, what's a product that you absolutely love? I wrote uh, some of these answers in uh, Bear Notes, which is a note-taking app. It does everything I want and nothing more, and it does it well. Great app. Love that. Uh, what's a product that you wish was better? Um, you know, Jira is probably the first thing that comes to mind. I, I would be happy to just never use Jira again in my life, I think. Um but it, as a general category, uh, applicant tracking systems, ATSs, I just, yes. I don't believe that there's, I've never used a good one. I've used all the big names and they're all terrible uh, for different reasons. I don't know why that is one, one type of software that just has, has no great options. I totally understand that feeling. Um, if you could solve any one problem through technology, what would it be? I mean, there's so many, so many, so many things come to mind with that question, but some, some more recent things, uh, in my life, I think, um, having the ability to have transparency in healthcare pricing, like technology is, this doesn't even require technological advances. We could use the technology we had in the nineties and do a better job of transparency in, in healthcare costs here in the United States. Um, but there's so many others that like, I'm just thinking of, of what we had in the night, like tax filing, filing your taxes. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh man, you know, that could be a, some countries it's a text message to the government. You're done. Like there's a lot of reasons why it isn't that way in the U S but oh, that's another one. There's just so many. And we so wouldn't many. even have to invent something, you know, like time travel or, or, you know, faster than light transporting capabilities just to, Technology of the '90s would suffice. Yeah, that's uh, it's a really interesting point. The stuff that we, the, the amount that we could do with what we already have, as opposed to the stuff that we want to do with what we haven't even created yet, is yeah. a really interesting chasm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well said. <laughs> well, listen, Brian, I adore you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope everybody. Uh, I hope you set the stage for more engineers to go talk publicly with product people and and not think it's going to be scary. Because I hope it yeah. wasn't scary. No, it was great. Uh, engineers, come uh, come join the podcast. Come have fun. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.
advisor, 